be morning. <clears throat> My throat is a little scratchy this morning. It's always after I sing on Sunday mornings, but I preached yesterday as well. Um, we had uh, a camp yesterday that I go to every year and share the gospel, and I did wear my mask the whole time. Um, but I went to a camp yesterday, shared the gospel. There were probably about anywhere from 15 to 20 kids, probably closer to 20 kids, and uh, five of them did give their life to Christ. So that's that's a fourth of them. That's that's great. Um, and so that so I was I did a lot of speaking yesterday. So I come in this morning with my throat a little sore, and then uh, I can't not sing, uh, even though I know I'm about to get up and preach. I still got to sing. So I, if I end up running out of voice, I may shorten up our sermon today. But it is so good to see y'all. It's so good to sing with y'all. Um, it's so good to have an opportunity to, to share the gospel at, at events like this. And so I, um, I just want y'all to know that I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Glad to see y'all. So we've been journeying through the Bible, and we've been looking at this, the, this theme, the kingdom of God. We've been talking about it for a while. We've been in the Old Testament up to this point pretty much. Uh, so we've spent about 30 weeks in the Old Testament, and now we're going to spend about 20 weeks in the New Testament. That's kind of how the F-260 plan goes. I don't know if any of y'all are real familiar with that plan, but spend 30 weeks in the old, 20 weeks in the new. It's actually a pretty good, it's a pretty good way to divide it up in the year. Um, but we're going to start jumping into the New Testament. We talked about last week, we talked about Isaiah, and we talked about this prophecy coming to Jesus. So, so this week we're going to kind of transition, transition into the New Testament, set ourselves up uh, for going out through here. And what I'm going to do is um, starting next week, we're going to start picking up with the teachings of Jesus and the things that he said that taught that related to the kingdom of God. So I think y'all are going to really, really enjoy enjoy that little um, series of that adventure, I guess, a good word to use. But today is called Get Ready for the Kingdom of God. So we are transitioning from our Old Testament to our New Testament today. So before we jump in, let's let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Father, we thank you for giving us your son. We thank you for giving us life. We thank you for giving us existence. We thank you for being good. We thank you for being all-powerful and in control. Father, we could sit here and, and thank you all day long. And Father, I pray that we do thank you in t- our entire lives. Father, I pray that we do not take you for granted and that we do continuously thank you for all the things that you have blessed us with. And Father, we, we know the greatest blessing of all was that you blessed us with yourself to have a relationship with you. And, Father, we're thankful for that. Father, I pray that as we study your word this hour, that you would, you would help us to understand it clearly and to help it to sink into who we are so that it changes how we talk and how we live. It changes everything about us. Father, we want to be made more into your image and move your kingdom forward. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, there's different ways you can start off transitioning into the New Testament. Um, one way, of course, would be to jump to Luke and talk, start at Jesus' birth and then and go through Jesus being uh, born in a, in a manger and all that. Um, but, but I think I'm going to hold that off till later. I think we'll just start at Matthew, where our New Testament starts. 
um, the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew 1.1 says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is pr pronounced at the very beginning, the very first words of Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus is the son of David. This was a clear understanding in Jewish culture. Jesus was the son of David. They were looking forward to the son of David. They were expecting the son of David to come and to do what? He was going to establish a kingdom. He was going to conquer all the nations in the world. He was going to set up peace. And somehow, miraculously, through God's intervention, the peace that he set up around the whole world was not just going to affect their nation versus the other nation, how people relate to each other. Somehow it was going to affect even how people related to animals, how creation related, how everything worked together, that even the animals wouldn't kill each other. Even the animals would go back to eating, eating grass and eating plants. But this, this son of David was a clear, clear expectation of who Jesus was going to be. And so a little bit, a few verses later, you jump to verse 16. It says, In Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So here we go. Jesus, Matthew says, at the very beginning, not going not gonna to hide anything to the end. I'm going to tell you from the very beginning, Jesus is the Messiah. And that word Messiah had a lot of expectations with it. And so um, what I'm going to say does not necessarily pertain to me and Lindsay because I don't want to say anything that would get myself in trouble. We had a great birthday yesterday, and I don't want to goof that up. I tend to always goof up everything, so let's, I'm going to try to dance gingerly uh, and, pick, and pick things that have nothing to do with us. So, and that's not sarcasm, really. Uh, but I just... I can't talk about expectations without talking about it in the concept of marriage because that's the perfect example for us to understand this idea of expectations. Um, so I'm just going to reference when I do premarital counseling. This is something I share with young couples who are excited and, and ready to get married, and, and they're all excited because marriage is just going to be the best thing in the world, which I will be a firm believer and say it is. I, I think marriage is awesome. Uh, but one thing that, that all of us, everybody, uh, probably doesn't have the best grasp of going into marriage is expectations. We all have expectations even though we don't realize it. We all have expectations about everything, even though a lot of times we don't realize all the expectations we have. Pretty much most of the time, any of us get perturbed, upset, aggravated, it's because our expectations were not met. Uh, going into marriage, you have two people who grew up in two different families, and I guarantee, what, what was it, Justin Wilson? Was he the one you say, I guarantee? I guarantee that uh, they grew up and their families were not the same. That one grew up in one household, one grew up in another, and things were done differently in those households. And so some examples that, um, that you hear about is uh, the, the, the girl grows up in a family and her dad was the one that always cleaned the toilets. The boy grows up in his family and his mom was the one that always cleaned the toilets. And they get married and then a few weeks go down the road and they're kind of wondering why the other person's not cleaning the toilets. 
You know, this is just an expectation they had. Never thought to come up in conversation before we get married because when I promise you, when you're dating and you're engaged, you're not talking about who's cleaning the toilets. You may not get to that wedding date if you do. But those are just expectations that lots of us just have and we just don't realize we have them until, until it comes up. Um, so that, that doesn't really have anything to do with Jesus the Messiah. I just wanted to you know, bring a little humor into the, the sermon, I guess. But, but the idea is that when, when, when Matthew said that Jesus, who is called the Messiah, we as Americans don't have the same expectations that the Jewish people did. The Jewish people in his day had lots of expectations of the Messiah. They had lots of ideas about who the Messiah was going to be, what the Messiah was going to be like, and what the Messiah was going to do, and what he was going to do for them. And so Matthew gets right to the point, very beginning, Jesus is the Messiah. So then he gives us, he, he jumps into a story where he talks about wise men. We're all familiar with wise men, right? How many wise men were there? Do y'all know? It's a trick question. We don't know. You say, what do you mean we don't know? There's three. Look at every nativity scene you've ever seen. There's three, right? There's three. No, we don't know how many wise men we are. We just know they gave three gifts. And so that's where comes the three Messiah, the three wise men. Um and that made all me think about all kinds of things I could get into, but let's not. Let's let's keep on with our sermon. Uh, but yeah, some wise men came to town. So let's look at it. Matthew two one through six. Because because point is, Matthew thought it was very important to include this story after Jesus' genealogy. And whenever any of the the, the biblical writers who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. I can just as easily say the Holy Spirit felt it was very important to include this story right after the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew gives a genealogy of Jesus, says, hey, Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. And by the way, I just want to tell you this story about when he was young. Let me, let me, let me throw this in. And if, if when, whenever the gospel writers do this, it's very important. Let's look at what they have to say. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1 says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? There you go. That right there is why this story is important. Because he, Matthew just got done saying, here's the genealogy of Jesus. He's the son of David. He's called the Messiah. And by the way, People from foreign nations, when he was born, came to Jerusalem and they came to the king and they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This was the expectation of the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be the king of the Jews. And every king has a kingdom. And that's the importance of this the kingdom of God. Jesus was the king. The, Messiah, the wise man came and said, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, 
And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this is a quotation of Micah. In Micah 5, 2, it says, Bethlehem Ephrathath, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So here you go. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the king of the Jews who will rule over his people. And his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So Matthew, in the first few lines of his gospel, has just spelled out this picture. I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. And let me, right up front, let me tell you who he is before we get into his life and get into what he taught and get into what he said. Let me just go ahead and right up front and tell you who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the king of the Jewish people. And he is, his origin is not human. He's not a regular human like you and me, who our origin is from the date of our birth. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He is God incarnate. God born in the flesh, our king. So then he goes on uh, to talk about uh, John the Baptist. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. He said to, uh, for, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So here's Matthew sharing the gospel. This is the beginning of our New Testament. He says from the very beginning, hey, let me give you the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, by the way, is the king. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. And he is mysteriously from antiquity, A.K.A. later we realize he's God in the flesh. But he is, his origin is not human origin. And then the next thing he jumps into is sharing the story of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way in the, in the, in the, in the spirit of Elijah. And this is what John the Baptist goes around preaching. He says he goes around preaching saying, um, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. He starts off by saying, when has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. What does that mean? What does it mean, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight? Did John the Baptist expect the people to go out and redo all the roads? Did you know that the roads going up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was up on a hill. You know, you know, you're familiar with that concept, right? Up on a hill that makes it for a very fortified city because everybody trying to attack the city has to come up a hill. You're above them, so you've got the superior advantage. It was a very, very well-placed city. But the road goes back and forth to go up the hill to the city. John the Baptist did not, I assure you, did not Expect the people to go out and to start digging a straight down path from the city down to where? Like where would, I mean, where would they even send it to? I mean, you got to know where the king's coming from, right? Obviously, this had nothing to do with road construction. What does it mean to 
Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Well, what's the concept? The concept is the king has gone off and the king is coming back to the city. Y'all familiar with David, right? David, Bathsheba, everybody's familiar with that story? It said that in the springtime, during the time when kings go off to war, David stayed behind. That's what got the first step of getting him in trouble. That's not what got him in trouble. It was just the first step that got him in trouble. But there was this concept that kings went off to war. And what happened? When they came back, they were greeted. The people came out of the city. The people put down all kinds of stuff to, and, and made elaborate shows to greet the king coming back to the city, right? They prepared the way. And there's all kinds of different ways that they did this. But it was, an, it was this idea of going out and preparing the city for the acceptance of the king to come back. So what did they do? Well, if you had your, your cart with all your, your vegetables and things that you were selling in the street, guess what happened? You had to get stuff out of the street. You had to move your business cart. You had to move it out of the way. If people had left trash in the street, they were going to have to get that out of the way. We were going to prepare the way for the Lord to come back unhindered with no obstacles. We're going to remove, we're going to go out, we're going to remove any obstacles so that the king can make a straight path back to the city. Straight doesn't mean the road has to be straight. It just means he doesn't have to make a detour. He doesn't have to go around. He doesn't have to be delayed. He can just make a straight path back into the city. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Get rid of anything that's an obstacle. Get rid of anything that would keep him from being able to come right in. That's the message that John the Baptist was trying to get to the people. And the, the king was the Messiah, the one that had been prophesied as to come, the one who's going to set all things right, the one who's going to do away and vanquish sin, period. And so John the Baptist said, let's make sure that we remove all obstacles and we remove anything that's going to hinder the Messiah from coming. And in hindsight, we see what that looks like. And we see what that call is. That call is for us, as it was throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again, that the God would get the prophets to tell the people, would be to purify your hearts. Cleanse your hearts. Worship me from your heart, God wanted. True worship. Treat people right. Do honor and justice. Don't, don't cheat. Don't... don't don't use my temple as, as a business. Use my temple as a place of worship. Come back to me with your heart. And that, in essence, is what John the Baptist was calling the people to do. To prepare the way for the Lord, to make his path straight, would be to remove any obstacles or hindrances that would keep him from coming into the city. And that's us, and that's our sin. And so we must get rid of our sin. We must put sackcloth and ashes on us. We must humble ourselves. We must grieve over our sin. We must prepare ourselves for the, for the coming of our great king who's going to lead us into victory and take care of us. Matthew 3, 4 through 6 says, Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Mm. 
You know, I like our potlucks. <laughs> I don't know that I want to try this one one day, but hey, this sounds this may sound like a a youth group thing. I don't know. You don't put anything past those adventures. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him. Now, I, I, we don't have time to get into it in this sermon, but I believe there was a specific reason that John the Baptist wore what he wore, ate what he ate, lived the way he lived. God told him to. I mean, that was instruction. But I think there was a specific reason God told him to, and maybe we'll get to that later um, because it has, it has to do with what Jesus says later in the Gospels. So maybe we'll come back to that then. Um, but everything is done for a reason. But he goes on to say, everybody in the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So there we have the clear picture. John the Baptist is preaching to people to make the pathway clear for the Lord to come, to straighten his path, clear the way. And as he's preaching, this is what he's getting them to do, to come into the river and be washed clean symbolically and to confess their sins. So that, that was his goal. His goal was to say, to get people to confess their sins and to turn from them. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what he said. Repent. And that's what they were doing. They were coming down. They were admitting their sinfulness. And they were saying, I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning from sin. And I'm going to live holy before my God. I'm going to prepare myself to meet my king. And people were doing that. And that's exactly what John the Baptist had them doing. Now, he, uh, let's, let's not get into that. Anyways, all right, might as well. You're, you're all on the, on the hook now. Um, this is something we've kind of gotten away from. And aren't you glad that you did? <laughs> you know, in biblical, biblical descriptions of baptism, this is what it was. You had a bunch of people and you got baptized. But what happened was, and the, the process, you know, we say the process is coming down and telling everybody you believe in Jesus and want to be saved. Their process was, okay, you come on down and tell everybody what your sins are and tell them that you're going to quit, quit doing them. And you say, I don't like that. Well, I don't like that either. But there's a reason for it. What do you think the reason is? Because this is a family. And it's called accountability. And when you come to your family who's going to walk this journey with you, you tell them, you all know me, this is my sins, and I'm telling you that I'm turning from sin to worship God. Now you all know what, what that is, and now you can hold me accountable and check on me and ask me, how you doing? You struggling? You doing good? How, how, are you, have, you, have you been winning your battle against X, Y, Z? Because that's what a loving family is for and does. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to, to doing that kind of stuff. But what it takes is it takes a real family. A real family that cares about you and not somebody who's just coming in here to, to go home and gossip about what they, what they heard you was doing. But I digress. Let's get back to this. So that, this, is, this is what John had them doing. He had them repenting, telling them that the kingdom of heaven was coming near and that they should turn, confess their sins and turn from them. 
Then we jump to Matthew, uh, continue Matthew chapter 3, continuing on to verse 7 and 8. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So we don't like when we hear confrontation. We say that's not nice. You know, it's not nice to call somebody a brood of vipers. Doesn't seem to be the right heart to say, who warned you to come get saved? It's not. Everybody that we read in the Bible is not perfect. Everybody doesn't always do the right thing. But there's a point to learn from everything. The good things everybody does, the bad thing everybody does. There's a point to learn from it all. And so here's John the Baptist, and he's saying, and the point is, there were those who were coming who were not truly repentant, who had no desire to repent. And we read that later. They had no desire. They didn't like that John was baptizing people because they didn't approve him. They didn't say, he's not a priest. They were they were working from the, the priest system, not priest, but the priest system, in which they were the hierarchy, they were the ones who were the leaders of the religious church, they were, they were the leaders of the synagogues, and that you had to come through them. And here's John the Baptist coming along, and now everybody's going out to him. And he didn't have approval to do that from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wasn't part of the Sanhedrin. They didn't give him authority for people to go to him to be saved. And so they didn't like what he was doing. And they came out to confront him, and he was no pushover. And he confronted them back. And he said, I'm telling you, you cannot presume to say to yourselves that you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And here's the message. Here's the message that Matthew wanted you to hear. Here's the message the Holy Spirit wanted you to hear, is that to prepare the way for the Lord, you must repent. You must turn from your sins. But birth will not save you. Being Jewish will not save you. Being born Jewish and saying that Abraham is my father, I'm of the correct bloodline, I am a descendant of David in David's household, will not save you. He said the axe is at the foot of the tree. You can be born into the Jewish line, but he's saying there's an axe right here. And anybody who doesn't repent, Jewish or Gentile, Anyone who does not repent and produce fruit with that consistent with repentance gets cut off from the tree of life. You don't get saved because you're your parents or your grandparents. You're saved by your own personal decision to turn from sin to God. And this is the this is the message. He says, the one I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire for repentance. And so here's the picture. He said, I baptize you with water that really can't do anything. 
But there's one who's coming after me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can change you. The Holy Spirit can make you into a new creation. The Holy Spirit can give you the ability to overcome sin. And so he separates the saved from the lost. And the, and the requirement that he places right here between the saved and the lost is what? Those who repent. That's the message. That's, that's what he teaches. That's what John the Baptist is going around teaching. Those who repent will be saved. Those who don't repent will not be saved, regardless of whether you're Jewish or, or not. <clears throat> then he jumps into the story of Jesus. <clears throat> now, Jesus was baptized by John. John at first pushed back and said, no, 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 I'm not worthy to baptize you. Jesus said, do it anyways. He said, yes, sir. He was baptized by Jesus. Then, immediately, he tells us that Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So Satan tempted Jesus. And what did Satan try to get him to do? He tried to get him to do everything that he had always tried to get every person to do, which is rebel against God. He tried to get him to test God. He tried to get him to not trust God. And he tried to get him to literally worship him instead of God. Jesus said, not going to happen. You get out of here. Leave. And then Satan realized he couldn't tempt Jesus to sin like he could everybody else in history. Because Jesus wasn't human like everybody else. He was God in the flesh. So then John gets arrested because he's making a lot of progress. He's making a lot of headroom. A lot of people are going out to get baptized by him and repent of their sins and, and turn. And they're looking to him for a way of salvation to be baptized to be saved. So he gets arrested. And then we get to Jesus after all of this. Jesus says his winnowing shovel is in his hand. No. Uh, yes, his winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will, he will burn with fire that never goes out. This is talking about, this is talking about what Jesus is going to do. Now, after, after the, I, I, okay, I got confused. I forgot to finish reading the last set of verses. That's why that I was confused right there. Um, that was the ending of it. That was verse 12. I forgot to finish reading that. John was saying about Jesus that, you know, he's going to separate those from who repent, who those who don't repent, those who produce fruit consistent with repentance, those who don't produce fruit consistent with repentance. And he says his winnowing shovel is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will he will burn with fire that never goes out. It's the exact same thing. What he's doing is Jesus will separate those who produce fruit, and those who don't, those who produce fruit will be saved. Those who don't will go to hell. And that's, that is the, the essence of what John was preaching. Then after, after Jesus' baptism, after the temptation in the wilderness, and after John's arrest, then it goes on. Matthew four seventeen picks up. From then on, after John's arrest, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And you've heard me say this before. This was the exact same thing that John was preaching. John got arrested for preaching it. Then Jesus goes on to preach the exact same message. Here, let's look back at John's real quick. Matthew 3, 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then Jesus, from then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so what we're seeing from God is the same message of salvation I've been preaching from the very beginning is the same message I'm going to keep on preaching. I'm not throwing out the Old Testament as some want to do today because it has a lot of stuff that they don't like. God said, I'm not throwing out everything I've told you in the past. I'm just making it more clear and more clear and more clear as time goes on. But Jesus went around preaching the exact same message that John was preaching. <clears throat> then he tells us that he calls his first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Matthew four eighteen to 22. And as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. <clears throat> now he's called four disciples. They don't have 12 yet. He's called four. Look what he then goes around with his four disciples, Matthew tells us. He then goes around preaching with four disciples. This is what he says. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. What was he preaching? The good news of the kingdom. See, everything revolves around this. The entire message, our entire gospel message, everything revolves around the kingdom. And that's why we've been in it for a year. And that's why, as when this whole series is up, that's why you'll never hear me stop talking about the kingdom. Everything revolves around this kingdom. And who is the king? Jesus. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And he's been telling us from the beginning and continues to tell us who will enter the kingdom and who will not enter the kingdom. And I'm telling you, there's nothing more important than knowing that right there. That's it. The message about the kingdom is good news. Why? Why is it good news? It says the, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Why is it good news? Because you can become a part of the kingdom one day regardless of your past. You can become a, a member of the kingdom one day on your last day on earth. You can become a member of the kingdom on your last day on earth with nobody there to hear it but you and God. And that's why I tell you, and I say it before, I say it again, none of us know who's going to be there when we get there. We don't know till we get there. We don't know. Because God is loving and forgiving and compassionate and wants to forgive us. Over and over and over and over and over, the Scripture says He wants to forgive us. And I promise you, I can say this beyond a shadow of a doubt, I promise you, He will forgive people on their last day who call out to Him that we would never. It's just true. It's, it's just true. Does that make Him unjust? No, because He won't compromise His justice but he doesn't have to compromise his justice. God knows if you mean it or not. That's the difference between him and us. We could look at somebody, let's take Adolf Hitler, for example. He seems to be a prime example everybody likes to use. Easy one. I, I don't know. 
never knew him, so it's okay for me to talk about him. The atrocities he committed are beyond imagining. I remember Ravi Zacharias talked about how he went to Auschwitz and saw the one of the uh, death camps. He said they had concentration camps and they had death camps. And he went to one of the death camps and he went through this place and, and they've got it set up today so everybody can always visit it and, and go through it kind of like a museum type thing. So you never forget the atrocities that happen. Why do we never want to forget the atrocities that happen? Because we never want to repeat them. That's the point. So it goes through this, this death camp they go from room to room, and they see all kinds of, I mean, just awful things. They see pictures of um, little boys that they committed experiments on. They see, I mean, you see, you go into this one this one, uh, one part of it. I don't know, I think he called it a chamber. But you know where they gas them? They would hurt them all into the rooms and gas them. You, you saw that saw pictures of them all just stacked in there. And then you had all the women, they would shave all their hair off, you know, and so there was this one room that just had like, I don't know, 10,000 pounds of hair. I could be wrong on that number, but just a, a massive amount of women's hair stacked up in this room for you to see what they did. They would shave all their hair off, and I guess they would use it for stuff. I don't know. But, and, then, and then they made the, the, those prisoners the Jewish prisoners, who they didn't feed, and so they were literally skin and bones, they made them bury all the people that gassed and come out. They would make them bury them until they died. Awful. And then I don't really know what really happened, but I just take, take for face value. It says that uh, before they found Hitler that he had shot himself. Maybe he shot himself, maybe somebody else shot him. I don't know, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference at the end of the day. But he didn't want to get caught, and I understand why he didn't want to get caught. So he shot himself. Now, we could take that example, and you could say, somebody who did that, I don't care if he cries out to God at the end of his life to ask for forgiveness. If God forgives him, he's not just. Maybe. Here's the way I take it. You can quote me on this. It's just my belief. I don't think Hitler could have possibly meant from his heart that he grieved over what he did and wanted forgiveness. I just don't think it's possible. I don't think at that point, because the Bible talks about us hardening our hearts. It's, it's, tr it's true. The more you sin, the more you reject God, the more you do evil, the more you push off the conscience of the Holy Spirit, it says you harden your heart. You harden your heart. You harden your heart. You harden your heart. I think by the time Hitler got to the end of his life, his heart was so hard, he could not have been felt grief or remorse. He could not have truly been repentant. I, I just don't think it's possible. But I will tell you, there are people like him and lots of others, I would not forgive if they asked me for forgiveness. I couldn't. But I think God can. But he, the big difference is, he knows the heart. He does. We don't. He knows the heart. 
And you can come to Christ in your last moments on earth, regardless of your past, if you are truly, truly repentant. Truly. That's why we'll never know until we get there who's actually what repented and who didn't. Romans 10, 9, 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Anybody can be saved. Anybody you know can be saved. Anybody. If they're still alive, if they're on this earth, they can still be saved. And I guarantee you, God is not going to give up drawing them with the Holy Spirit until that day. Pray for him. I think that's the most powerful thing you can do. Because the Holy Spirit can work on people when we're not there. The Holy Spirit can work on people at home, in their beds, in the dead of night, can keep them from getting sleep. The Holy Spirit can work on people when we can't. Pray for them. Pray that the Holy Spirit draws them. Pray that the Holy Spirit won't let up on them. Pray that they will repent and turn to Christ because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved and what does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord it's the same thing John was preaching it's the same thing Jesus was preaching it means that you obey him you turn from sin you repent and that's why the Southern Baptist Convention If you look at any of the stuff that they give out, the North American Mission Board, any of their gospel materials that they print, they always include two words. They say repent and believe. Those are the two words they put out on everything. Repent and believe. Why? Because we don't believe there's two ways to be saved. We believe there's one. And we believe that you can't have one without the other. It's like two sides of a a coin. One side you got a president's head, the other side you got an eagle. Okay, you got the head and you got the eagle, but it's one coin. That's kind of what we see here from the scriptures is that the Bible says, if you repent, you will be saved. The Bible says, if you believe, you will be saved. But there's not two ways. It's not some people can repent and be saved without believing. Some people can believe would be saved without repenting. It's the same thing. And, the, and I'll just finish it up with this. If you say you believe the truth, but you don't repent. That is the same as saying, I believe you, God, but I reject you. That's what that means. I believe you, but I reject you as my king. I believe you, but I reject you as my God. I will not submit to you. I will not do what you ask. I will not turn from sin. I will not follow you as my Lord. That's, in essence, all it means if you say you believe and don't repent. That's what it means. Which is why the Bible's so clear. You must repent and believe. And I'm telling you, if you truly love God, if you truly love someone, you will repent of your sin against that person. Period. You know that. All of you here are not married. But you can imagine a scenario If I really love my wife, I will repent of sinning against my wife. 
I will stop. I will change. And if I'm not willing to, it shows a lack of love in my heart for her. We understand this easy with people. It's no different with God. If we truly love God, we will repent of sinning against him. We will. Why? And here's my opinion. Because the Holy Spirit has come to change us and give us new desires and new, new hope, new love, new heart. That's why. You can't have one without the other. The Bible doesn't teach one without the other. I know it leaves questions sometimes. You can come up with scenarios sometimes and say, well, what about this or what about this? It makes, you know, it seems confusing at first. There's a lot of questions, but look, that's what Jesus taught. That's what John the Baptist taught. That's what Paul taught. That's what Peter taught. That's what everybody taught. So that's what I'm going to teach. If you, if you do have questions, email me, ask me. Let's have a conversation. I will have it with you in love. But if that is the clear message from beginning to end of this word, then that is the clear message I'm going to preach from this pulpit. That they are the same thing. To repent and believe. It's one step. I love y'all. So good to see y'all. Do not give up. Don't give up in this world. It's hard. It's going to get harder. I'm sorry. It will. Life is hard. It will get harder. But guess what? It will get infinitely better one day. And we get glimpses of that together when we act as, the, as God wants us to act here as a community. This is a family. And you want to know what heaven looks like? This is a glimpse of it. Heaven is where we live as a family and never sin against each other. And I'm telling you, this church may be small, but it is a great, 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 great example of what heaven looks like. Of a family living together, working together, not sinning against each other. Lord knows I'm not perfect. But I love y'all. And y'all love me. This is a picture of what the kingdom is like. Yes, we have something great to look forward to, but we have something great to cherish right here. And we need to do the best we can to continue to do that to continue to be that family, continue to love each other because that is what God wants us to do. And I don't know what I would do without this church right here. I don't know what I would do. I mean that. All right. I feel like I should open it up to questions because that's what I did yesterday with the kids. Any questions? All right, great. <laughs> well, we're family here. You can ask me anything you want, anytime you want. But know that I'm praying for y'all. And I love y'all. And keep, keep sending me your prayer requests. I get them during the week, and I, and I continue to pray for the people that you send to me. Um, and, and, and I'm going to work on a way for us to all have a, have a group chat we can all just get in on. So, All right, let's, let's pray together. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you. Father, we know you love us. There's no doubt in our minds. Your, your scripture is clear. The steps that you have gone through from the days of Adam and Eve until today is an undeniable picture of your amazing and unfailing love for us. 
And so, Father, we just ask for you to give us just a portion of that love to live out for others. Father, we can't even comprehend how much you love us. But, Father, we know that you've made your scriptures clear. You've made them clear from beginning to end that we are to turn from sinning against you and we are to live our lives wholly, completely, devotedly loving you. That we are to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And honestly, you cannot, we cannot do that without turning from sin. Can't do it. And so, Father, I, I thank you for preaching a clear message, that you are clear with us. You told us everything we need to know to get through this life, even though it's going to be difficult, even though it's hard. And so, Father, we thank you that you are forgiving, you are compassionate, and that you walk with us intimately, living within us. And we thank you for your love, Father. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your pursuit of us. And so, Father, I pray that we will be the church that you have in, in mind, that the church should be, that we would be a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, your children, living on earth as you would have us to live in heaven, that we are good examples of what that love is like. We love you, Father. We thank you. We ask and continue to pray for those on our prayer lists and on our hearts, on our minds, that you would continue to work in everyone's life. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.